Hello, and welcome to the TV Movie Rewind Podcast with Matt and Todd. Hello. And we're returning for our uh, spooky horror movie marathon for the month of October. And this time we're returning to TV for a TV movie. Yep. And one of the best possibly ever done. Uh, certainly one of the scariest. Sure. Stephen King's Salem's Lot, 1979 version, directed by Toby Hooper. Yep. And this is a, this is a classic, probably one of the best Stephen King adaptations. Not the most faithful for sure, but it's certainly one of the most enjoyable for me. Well, not many King adaptations end up being all that faithful, unfortunately. No, and, and the changes they made in this one, I think, really work. Um, and we can we can get into that as we go if we want to get into any of the differences from the book. I mean, it's it's different enough in that it's more of a horror tone, whereas a book, which is not necessarily not a horror tone, it is Stephen King. But the book is a bit more of a Dracula vibe. This is a bit more of a monster movie vibe. Yes, uh, this is the this was actually only the second Stephen King adaptation to film. Which is fitting because it's also based on his second novel. Right. The first adaptation, of course, was Carrie based on his first novel. His and first I should novel, probably yeah. say first published novel because he wrote so much and oh, yeah. is still writing so much. Right. I, I did the math. If right now Stephen King never wrote anything else uh-huh. and you were to read just one novel a month, just as novels now, not all the short story collections or all sure. that. If you got through one novel a month by Stephen King, it would still take you more than five years to read all his novels. Wow. I mean, prolific is definitely the word. Yeah. Now, I don't this... think I could read them as fast as this man could write them. No, but but this is this is an unusual book for him because this one um, this one has a lot to do with a character who's also an author, which is very unusual for him. Takes place in Maine, also. Yeah, you know. yeah, it's kind of out there. It's kind of, he has some he has some out there uh, decisions. Yeah. In fact, there's there's two main characters: one that is a writer and one that hopes to be a writer. That's right. Possibly. That's right. Now, really, the basis of this movie is um, the struggle of a man played by David Soule <laughs> to shut the door of his Jeep Wrangler. Yes. Which is, if I remember in those days, the door was just kind of zippered on because Jeeps, this is back in the early days of the Jeep Wrangler where they were just supposed to be, you know, a very basic sort of boxy config, post-war configuration where the cover was more or less an afterthought. So it just kind of like zippered on, if I remember right. Yeah, it is one of those. It's one of those old school where where the the top and the doors and everything yeah. is just like a zippered on canvas attachment. We knew someone growing up with a Jeep very much like that. And I remember that with like the canvas, like zipper on door. Yeah. Yeah. Uncle Kevin. Yep. That's right. Yep. Now also, like you said, David's soul stars in this movie. So we've also Starsky and Hutched because. Yes. We've gone uh, full Starsky and Hutch. That's right. Running Man. Starsky directed Running Man. Hutch stars in Salem's Lot. And I think uh, this might have been during the final season of Starsky and Hutch because Starsky and Hutch ended in 79. Oh, maybe. 
So this may be after the show had already wrapped up. It would make sense that he had more time to do it if the, if, if uh, Starsky and Hutch was over. Right on. But uh, he is really, really, really good in this. Oh, he's fantastic. Uh, it's he, a really well-acted movie. He, everybody's good in it, yes. But, you know, a, a lot of times you just think of, especially like the 70s TV cop stars, you don't really appreciate their acting ability. Because a lot of times that's all you ever know them from or see them in. I'm I'm willing to bet, and we can get to it. It's not like it's a surprise or is a surprise character or anything. But I'm willing to bet you can guess who my Wood Bissell Award winner is going to be. Is it is it possible he should be the Elijah Cook Award winner? Um, I guess it could be possible that he could be the Elijah Cook Award winner. Sure, because Elijah Cook Jr., one of the greatest character actors of all time, usually listed second behind Whit Bissell, is also in this movie. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. But it's not. It's not actually Liza Cooko that it probably should be. But it's not. Well, that's the, He's other the father thing about... of a very famous actor. But he brings it home with his mainness in this movie. Like he channels Maine in this movie. Everybody kind of does, but but this guy, Mike Mike Ryerson, in particular. So we're both picking Jeffrey Lewis. We're going to get the oh, yeah. right out of the way at the beginning. Oh, Jeffrey yeah. Lewis is our Whit Bissell Award winner because yes, he full on does main in this oh yeah he is the, he's the most main of this movie also also another huge character actor because he's got like over 200 <laughs> films and tv appearances one of oh, them yeah like we've done previously yep night of the comet where he's the leader of the think tank yep uh he, yeah, he's, he's he's another guy who just keeps finding himself in movies that i love and and yeah he goes full on as you know a, a a main working man. Yep. He, he even, you know, not only does he have the accent, he has the, um, the lingo. Yes. He's perfect. He's you absolutely know? perfect. You know, between the doa, he says, it, he says everything just right. He's awesome. Uh, yeah, he does. Yeah. Um, there are a few people like George Zunza, he, you know, he, 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 he does a great job. Like it's a really well acted movie. They pick some great actors for it, but there's one guy who is truly going like full on. I am absolutely from Maine. And I think, I believe Jeffrey Lewis is from like Bakersfield, California or something like he's certainly not from Maine, but he like, he, he gets it. He, he really does. Well, the whole, the whole movie was, well, some of it was filmed in Warner Brothers Studios, but most of the movie was filmed in Northern California. So it mm-hmm. still has some of that. You coastal kind of coastal yeah. main looking, you know, it, it's a reasonable facsimile. Um, yep. Old houses. Even they even have like the um, like someone had the house with the turnstile uh, um, doorknob uh, doorbell, which we're kind of familiar with because our grandmother on our dad's side had that at her house. Yes. I don't think it was working at the time, but she had it. The that you know, it's a it's a doorbell. It's old school doorbell for old school houses with no electricity, and it was just like there's just a bell on the inside of the door, and you're supposed to turn this like dial that makes it ring. And, and yeah, it, it definitely gets that old school look. Yeah. Also in this movie, only though he's only in the first third, really, or maybe the first quarter. Fred Willard. Yes. Who, while not my, one of my favorite actors, is one of my favorite people. He yep. always, anytime he would show up, he would make me smile. Fred oh, yeah. could be in anything, and you just kind of enjoyed his presence. Yep. He brought a, a jocular, affable attitude to just about everything he did. Right. Did. I think most people would know him now as Phil Dunphy's dad in and Modern he was, Family. He was fantastic in that role. He was perfectly cast as the right. dad. Of Phil Dunphy. 
Um, slightly older fans might know him as in most of the, um, oh, I've just completely forgot his name from Spinal Tap, uh, Christopher Guest. Like, he's in a lot of Christopher Guest movies, like Mighty yes. Wind and a lot of, and a lot of those. Um, like, he's, he's found his way into all sorts of usually comedic roles. This, I mean, he's kind of funny in this, but this is obviously not a comedic role for him. He gets to have a little bit of comic relief moment, I guess, as the, um, you know, hapless um, second man. And, uh, you know, to George Jensen's wife. But um, yeah, like I, I suppose like now he'd be probably most well known as the Phil Dunphy's dad. Yeah, they do a good job. Now, the first part of this movie and Toby Hooper and the producers, when they when they first started developing this, but even before Toby Hooper was on, they, they kind of realized, you know, it was supposed to be a theatrical movie mm-hmm. and they realized there was just no way to get it all in like a two-hour movie. It just right. it wouldn't serve the material properly. Right. And, and it wasn't like it is now where it's just like, oh, we'll just have to, <laughs> you know? It just, right. you didn't think of that back then. It was just, no, it's just too long. You know, we'll, we won't do two. That's crazy. So the really the first part of this is kind of a soap opera, a small town yep. soap opera. Where we're, you know, introduced to this little small town Maine Salem's lot, it's cast, it's, you know, all the little characters. Which is very true to the book. Most, a lot of this book, uh, initial part of the book is just setting up the town, its backstory, the backstory of everybody in it, um, which is a very Stephen King thing to do. But as you get through the book in particular, and it's less noticeable in the movie, because uh, they can only spend so much time with it. But, and, but in the book, um, a lot of that setup really works because of the way the vampires are presented in the book versus the movie, which is a little bit different. Yes. Yeah. Well, like, for instance, the whole uh, George Zunza and Fred Willard plot line. Fred Willard is pretty integral to the plot, especially when it comes mm-hmm. to uh, the character of characters of Stryker and Kurt Barlow, who are basically the bad guys. You know, right. the uh, Kurt Barlow's the vampire and Stryker is his... I, familiar protector you know right uh time right. slave who have moved to the small town of maine and they're setting up a business and and all that and and fred willard is the real estate man in the town who's helping them you know get property rented and and bought right. and and get their stuff in a less but, a more a more wily jonathan harker in a sense but less of a less of a central character in the way that jonathan harker was but but similar sort of facilitator role yes and he's having an affair with uh, George Zunza's wife, who's also his secretary. And that's a very soap opera plot that doesn't really have any bearing on the overall story. No, and even less so in the movie. In the movie, it's more just presented as like a scene that would be kind of fun to do because Fred Willard's a fun character. And George Zunza does a really good job um, with his role as playing like that jerk of a husband um, that would lead to such a situation. And, and with, the, with the movie um, Salem's Lot, that's more or less presented as just kind of like another thing to have. It doesn't really have the same context it does uh, that the books does. In fact, a lot of this movie doesn't. Now that I've, because I, I saw this movie first, right, um, many, many times, loved it. And I'm not much of a reader um, at all, especially when it comes to Stephen King, because his books can be very lengthy. But I finally, after the remake, the 2003 version of Salem's Lot and seeing how different it was, I decided to grab the book to try to figure out, okay, which one is more accurate. 
And the remake is certainly more accurate. Uh, the remake is certainly a lot truer to the book. And the remake has its own charm as well. I, I think this one is the superior of the two. Probably a lot of that has to do with what, you know, the fact that I saw it first and grew up with it and all that. But um, if you want to have a better sense of what the book was like without reading the book, then yeah, check out the, check out the remake. It's worth seeing. It's got the great Rucker Hauer in it. Um, Rob Lowe playing the um, uh, Ben Mears character. And um, but you can see like it's it's sort of a different vibe. The 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 vampires in the book and by extension, the remake are a bit more seductive, seductive. They have more of um, they have it's almost more of a cult um, that's kind of forming, um, which is, I guess, a bit more accurate when you consider what the backstory of the house must be. Whereas in this book, again, they're presented a bit more like movie monsters. Um, what is kind of cool about this movie and the vampire lore that it uses is that it's the old school kind of vampire lore that you grew up with in Hammer films and, and from books like Dracula, you know, like crucifixes, you know, sleeping in coffins, that whole thing. Like they don't really they don't really mess with the lore that you were expecting. If you were expecting classic vampire story, this is definitely one of them. Some of our listeners right now may have watched or be watching Midnight Mass on Netflix and there's a lot of similarities between that and Salem's Lot. Okay. Although I personally found Midnight Mass to be excruciatingly long and verbose. Yeah, fair enough. I, I haven't seen that's, it yet. That's my personal opinion. Most people seem to be loving it, which is good because it's good for horror when intelligent horror is made and people enjoy it. If nothing else, exactly, yeah. Um, um, one of the things with the book, right, and this is, again, par for this course with Stephen King, is it's, it can be quite verbose because so much of the book, so much of easily the first quarter of it is backstory and setting up the backstory of these characters, which when you're reading it, you're kind of like, okay, what's the point? But by the time you get into the book and they start and things start actually happening, you kind of appreciate who these people are. Like they have context now for when they're turning or dying or whatever. Like there's a bit more um, gravitas to it as opposed to, again, just sort of being victims to count off. Well, exactly. The The first part of this, this movie, and I would say really just the first hour of the three hours, mm -hmm. maybe not even, maybe like the first 45 minutes, being a soap opera does set you up. It brings you into this little charming town in Maine that, you know, still has its problems. You know, there's all sorts of people and for all sorts of sort and all walks of life mm -hmm. and that this is a real town. It's not just, uh, you know, the few main characters you're introduced to and then everybody else just appears as vampires. Right. You know, they're 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 real people. Uh, now, this was this, like we said, it hit TV in November of 79. So it was one of the last vampire things of the 70s which was having a huge resurgence of vampires in popular fiction and movies and television. Mm -hmm. And definitely this movie and the book followed the lead of vampires in modern times and mm -hmm. those people not being accepting of like oh, vampires. Those are things from the movie, like another seventies TV movie, the night stalker, mm -hmm. uh, another one of the most famous and well-received and well-regarded TV movies ever made is a modern-day vampire movie that also has Elijah Cook Jr. in it. It's, yep. it's this one, it's also, it's also about a writer investigating <laughs> a vampire, but it's in uh, Las Vegas, and this writer is a reporter 
a newspaper reporter. Right. Um, That's uh, Kolchak, right? Yes. Yep. Uh, played by um, Darren McGavin, who everybody will know as the dad in uh, A Christmas Story. Sure. And it's generally considered like the precursor to X-Files um, and then by extension stuff like the X-Files. Oh, it definitely. Uh, Chris Carter has has gone on record saying the X-Files was inspired by the Night Stalker yeah. and its following TV series. Uh, also, the Hammer films, the, the, the Hammer studio had brought their Dracula franchise into present day in the 19 in 1972 with Dracula A.D. 1972. Okay. And its sequel, The Satanic Rites of Dracula, both have Dracula awakening in modern day. Both of those Christopher Lee? Both of those Christopher Lee, both with right Peter on. Cushion as a descendant of Van Helsing. So oh, right on. It's, it's Christopher. They're, they're not the, the, they're probably, I would say, the least of Hammer's Dracula franchise, but just having Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing in them battling yeah. it out, it makes it well worth it. In fact, totally. Satanic Rites of Dracula is almost a spy movie in many ways with the lead villain like the bond villain being dracula oh neat okay yeah he wants to unleash a plague it, it's very james bondy oh really okay I'll have to check uh, that out. i know we should probably be saving this for recommendations but i'm just trying to say it set the stage of sure. like the 1970s and vampires being very popular because also around this time frank Ligella would be starring in the big budget Dracula remake at Universal. It's a really good movie. And that's one of the reasons they decided to really change up the character of Kurt Barlow right. in this movie. In the book, right. he's he's much more of a Dracula-style person. He's articulate. Right. He's charming. In here, he's full-on beast. I mean, right. You, you, if you look at the poster, he's featured prominently. He's this he looks like the classic Nosferatu. He's this absolutely beast-looking, with with exaggerated fangs and 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 pointy ears. He's he's a terrifying looking who is less than two minutes of screen time when it's yes. total. But boy, does he dominate that screen time! And that's that's like the one thing about like I get why the posters and DVDs and uh, VHS like have the poster the way they do. And it's a cool poster. Don't get me wrong, but it's like, I don't know the surprise. If you haven't seen it, the surprise of Barlow when you first see him is really jarring. It's truly jarring because you are not expecting that. And I don't know. We don't really know unless, you know, you find it an old TV guide is how this movie was advertised prior to people seeing it. Yeah, I'm not really sure either because uh, I mean I only would have been like three or so when the when it first aired the first time. Um, I was probably eight or so when I finally saw it. Yes, because this was so popular, it would play replay on television. Oh yeah, right and on. since it since it was on TV, you know, it wasn't deemed as being like like how bad could it be? It was on TV, right? But it's actually it's a pretty it's pretty it's not gruesome like it's not gory and remotely and a lot of like things are more or less implied or the or the scene cuts away but it's still like it's it's still pretty damn scary still well, to this they, day they there are alternate scenes that aren't in the tv version but are in the theatrical version that they sent okay. over to 
to play theatrically in other parts of the world. Oh, right on. Uh, would, now, would that be like the 90 minute cut or do they actually do like the whole thing? I think that's like a, a, a two hour cut. Okay. Okay. Cause, Cause I remember I got like the, I got, like, I didn't realize it at the time, but when I first got this on VHS, I got like the edited version, which is fine, but it's not necessarily better than the original, which does have some editing I don't know about editing problems, but one of one of the issues with this movie, and you'd be you'd be forgiven to not realize, is how much time actually takes place during this movie, because it almost feels like everything happens in like two days, right? But it's actually a quite a longer time, which is obviously a lot clearer in the book and and to some extent in the remake. Well, when it originally aired, it aired a week apart, so maybe that helped. Oh, true. The feeling of of time passing as well. That's a good point. That's a very one good of point. the things is you know, and and we should also point out that. I couldn't find this streaming anywhere that comes with a subscription, but you can okay. rent it on several online services for about $3. I but mean, you'll find it on TV somewhere by the end of this month, I'm sure. My recommendation is there's a $10 Blu-ray that comes with commentary by director Toby Hooper. That's the one that I got. That is, yeah. you know, it, it's a bargain at twice the price. Sure. Well, Especially if you're a fan of price. But... It's it's available online. You can find it on you know Target dot com, Amazon dot com, Walmart probably sells it. And it's all it, it's nine ninety nine. It is well yep. worth the 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 investment. Absolutely, yeah. If you're a fan of this film, definitely. And that's what I watched it, and you know, it's still you still get the scene where like it fades to black for what were obviously commercial breaks. Uh-huh. And there are some times where it's like, I know it's fading to black and I'm not waiting for commercial, but all I can think is those poor audience people back then. Like, oh, yep. a commercial break now. Come on. You're killing right. us. Right. Uh, this is such a, like, again, everything about it is so well done. Um, if you've already read the book, then the movie will work in a, in a lot of ways that it probably didn't work for others because you can kind of fill in the mental gaps. Um, if you've never read the book, it could seem a little bit confusing because, yeah, there's a lot of characters introduced. There's a lot of jumping back and forth, which is not like too many horror movies. But again, when you figure the source material and, and when you figure it is very much a modern day kind of Dracula story, like like it's it's definitely inspired from Bram Stoker's Dracula. There's obviously an awful lot of changes, but it's certainly inspired. It's like essentially Stephen King was like, well, what if Dracula happened? Yeah, in the 70s in some like random town in the 70s, as opposed to you know Europe in the 1800s, it would it might go something a little bit like this. And you know, yeah. Um, the um, in the in the in the book, the vampires are a bit more seductive. It's a little bit more like a cult, probably more like you described Midnight Mass being like it's a bit more of a cult like vibe where the vampires are like seducing the townspeople out of their a lot of them are just living kind of like dreary lives in this middle of nowhere part of Maine. And that's sort of where um, like that sort of message comes in, where like a lot of the townspeople willingly become vampires, uh, willing, you know, just to get out of what they're doing, just just to change their life, just because it's like a better you have this power and you can do whatever you want. Um, Like one of the more in fact, as like one good example of that, and this is obviously not the movie that we're supposed to be talking about, but just as a difference between the two. um, For one thing, Barlow talks, you know, he's just again, he looks more or less like a normal guy. He's a bit more like you said, a bit more of a Dracula type. And um, one of the characters who's not in the movie a lot, but as you mentioned, played by Elijah Cook uh, named Weasel. Um, Weasel's a bit more. uh, Well, actually. No, it's not Weasel. It's um, 
oh, I forget his name, but he's one of the workers that one, one of the guys that works with Mike at the um, graveyard, if I remember right. But but at any rate, there's a very powerful scene in which the master is like t- talking to this guy who's like life has not done him well. Um, I think he has like some developmental issues as well. But basically, he's like, you know, I can fix all that essentially by making him a vampire. So it's a very much more seductive um, vibe that that takes course through the book so which is what i appreciate about the toby hooper movie is that it's it kind of stands on its own as as a much more as a much different much more horror vibe that you can like you know get through in two bites two two uh two big chunks well you know like stephen king has said this he was heavily inspired by reading dracula and and the basic story kind of is there in the novel Dracula, you know, Dracula is coming from his old decrepit country. Right, looking for new places to go to. Looking for a new place, and he settles in on this little small area of London. Well, not London, England, but outside London. And that's exactly what happens here. You know, it's small town, Maine, Salem's lot, and the uh, character of uh, Straker, played by James Mason. Fantastically has, so. Has come to... And he loved doing it. Yeah, Toby he could Google tell. said he was enjoying playing this role. He oh, you could tell. Great, great time. And, and the more the more I see this movie, the more I realize... Or I don't know if this was strictly part of the reason, but like the more I agree with the choice that they made with Barlow, because how do you overshadow... Like, you risk overshadowing James Mason... Not that that's probably possible, well, but like you have this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful performance by James Mason as essentially the lead villain. Um, and you can't take away from that. Like he, he helps make this movie so much. He's amazing in this. And if you're going to have anybody speak. It might as well be him. Anybody, it may as well be James Mason. Yeah. That yeah. Just, just that wonderful voice of his. Yep. So what, he what, comes to town and, you know, starts setting things up in the guise of opening up an antique shop, but he's really just setting things up for Barolo to arrive and then mm-hmm. to spread their, their evil. And that's the other thing about this movie, because after this, you know, and, and there'll still be evil vampires and stuff like that, but a lot of vampires were turned into more of a seductive thing. And, you know, it's going to be cool to be a vampire. And in a way mm-hmm. they're, they're tragic heroes and yes yeah and sometimes that works but for me I, I prefer my vampires to be the evil monsters and that's what they're they're kept as in right. this in this uh movie Right. And this, they're very much, they're very much monsters. Like even though um, James Mason, even though Straker can talk a good game, you you can tell there's just, he's just dripping, like oozing evil the whole time. It's a great. One of his first acts is kidnapping a child to feed to the the vampire. Yep. Yep. He wraps him up like a to-go order. Yep. Yeah. Uh, So as we said, the basic premise of the movie is David Soul as writer Ben Mears returning home to his little town of Salem's Lot to mm-hmm. find, you know, he wants to write about this old house on the hill, the Marston House, which is the fabled haunted house of the area. And he always right. felt that the house had an evil presence and would draw evil there. And what I mean, take one it, look at it. <laughs> He's certainly right because it drew these these evil doers there, and and the house was built to. They didn't want to copy the psycho house, but that's the kind of house they wanted. 
totally, you, know, the you could sinister tell. Sinister-looking yeah. house up on the hill. Yeah, you could and totally tell it was inspired by the psycho. Yeah, Bates Motel house. He arrives to, you know, he had actually planned on hoping to rent the house so he could write his novel, but he finds this guy has gotten there before him, and you know, as he's re-immersing himself in the hometown, he sees, you know, that he meets uh, Bonnie Bedelia, <laughs> who he will have a romantic relationship through most of the film. Uh, Which his, will work out perfectly fine. Her, her dad, you know, who's always like, hi, diddly-ho, neighborino. <laughs> Ooh, yep. it seems like there's a spine-tingly-dingly adventure going on in our town. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, at first he's not all approving of this, you know, this this writer, hotshot writer coming in and, and, you know, suddenly, you know, taking up all his daughter's time. Right. Oh, his, his his young, impressionable 27 or so year old daughter. Nor is her recently ex-boyfriend. Ned, yeah. Who um, is responsible, really. The best jump scare in this movie has nothing to do oh, with vampires. But definitely. I'm not going to say anything else. Nope, it still makes me jump to this day. I still forget it's there. Gets me every. It is so yep. well done. It is probably totally. one of the most well done jump scares in TV or movie history. It's, absolutely, it, it gets me every time. It, absolutely, I always forget about that scene. And yeah, same with me. It gets me every time. And you know, we meet. Um, he's also got one of the best "I'm scared" mugs too. Like he's got basically the same look I would have. <laughs> uh, Lance Kerwin plays. Um, Mark Petrie, yep. who's another, you know, the other lead, essentially. He's a kid, you know, he's, he's, but he's very smart and he's, he's into monsters. You know, his room is all decorated with monster stuff and magic. Yep. And, you know, he actually likes writing himself. Yep. Uh, we meet uh, Ben Mears' old teacher, who is now, you know, Mark's teacher. We meet Mark's two young, two friends who are also in, well... The Glick Boys. The Glick Boys. Uh, the younger one, I don't think, is in school with them, or at least... D- a, yeah, I don't think so. In a few few grades lower, but they hang out together, and... Right. Um, well, no, because they're both, in the, they're both in the play. So, yeah, the other one's probably just like a couple of years behind. Yeah, he doesn't seem that much younger. Uh, we get... We get uh, Constable Gillespie, who has to have been inspired by, by Chief Gillespie from In the Heat of the Night. Okay. It's almost a transplant of characters. Um, um, I forgot the actor's name. Uh, again, a character actor, you'd Ca- recognize him, but he is channeling Rod Steiger. It's, not, Ch- uh, it's not Carol O'Connor? Heat of the Night? Or is that the TV show? I'm talking about the guy who plays Gillespie in this. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got you. But yes, Carol O'Connor played Chief Gillespie in the TV series in the heat of the night. Rod Steiger played him in the uh, the movie. The movie opposite yeah. Sidney Poitier. Gotcha. And he's named Gillespie in I I have to Harkins. assume there's yeah. there's there's some some um one of the smartest police officers I've ever seen in any horror movie. Oh, sure. We'll get to that. But anyways, you know, so the whole thing is, you know, the town's wary of, like, who's this guy coming into town, and and who's this other guy opening up an antique shop, and George Sons is like, I know Fred Willard's sleeping in with my wife, and I'm going to have to do something about that situation. You get this whole soup opera thing going on that ends the moment the youngest clip boy disappears. Yes. 
and now there's like a hunt, and of course the the, the Chief Gillespie's prime suspects are Straker and Mears, who are these strangers from out of town. Suddenly one of our kids goes missing. I'm going to look into that. Which is uh, fair. And correct on one of them. Yep. But the other thing, and, and, and I think it's Mears as an outsider that he realizes there's something bigger. And it, but he comes across... Like the crazy old man in every horror movie who's like, you're doomed. There's yes. a death curse on the And he, the way he talks to people, do you believe a house can be inherently evil? Um, <laughs> no. Yeah. Thank no. you. I'm going to go over here now. Nice to well, meet you, Mr. Mears. Well, what's interesting, too, is that two of the people he asked that question to, um, Jason Burke, the teacher, right? And... Um, and Straker himself both basically have the same response, which is, well, I've seen trees that look like <laughs> they both have essentially the exact same response. I just thought that was funny. So the little boy, I shouldn't call him little. What do you think he's about 10, 12 years old, maybe a little older? Are you talking I, about the, the younger Glick? I yes. think Danny. I forget which of the two Glicks. I know Danny's one of them. I forget which of the two Glicks. But yeah, he's probably, I don't know, eight, nine, ten, yeah. And you figure Mark's 14-ish? Yeah, I would say Mark's uh, probably 15, 16. Yeah. Not, not quite old enough to drive, but about to get there. He, you get, the, I think he's like probably... Uh, he a, seems to be older than the two click boys anyway. A sophomore slash junior. But you right. know, in small towns, age means a lot less when there's fewer kids to hang out with. This is very Any, true. Anybody remotely your age... And it's mostly like Mark just seems to really have his stuff together. Like it's stuff that his parents only, well, at least his dad doesn't seem to mind as much, but his mom is of course terrified of, because this is like seventies, right? Early eighties, small town. Yeah. And he's into like creepy stuff. And the dad's just like, whatever, you know, as long as he's not killing. He's a good kid. We know he's a good kid. He's intelligent. He doesn't give us any problems. He does schoolwork. Yeah, exactly. He does his schoolwork. So, you know, it's, it's fine. Um, and he, but I, th- I think it's mostly like his attitude of just seeming so like together that makes him seem older than he truly is. But it's, it's hard to, it's hard to gauge, but yeah, either way, like, yeah, he's not, he's not some like 35 year old trying to play like a teenager. Like, you know, Lance Kerwin is of age in the film, it would seem. So, uh, the younger glip boy is vampirized that he comes to his brother's window in one of the most creepily terrifying scenes Absolutely. Ever on television. It is and parodied multiple times since. Parody, no, it is incredibly well done. And oh, yeah. Toby Hooper says like they actually built a rig to yep. make him float around so that he wasn't on wires because they needed to do a rig where he could come through the wind float through the window as well. And right, like stuck to the front of a cherry picker or something kind of thing, right? But between the contact lenses that reflect light and make the eyes Which are so well done, yeah. The other makeup and, and the terrifying, just this facial expression yep. and the etherealness because they filmed it in reverse to just make your brain, your brain can't quite tell that it's in reverse, but the right. movements are just that out of, tune to be unnatural and again it tricks your brain into this the scary uneasy yeah and you know so the vampire curse starts to spread amongst the townspeople 
that seat real quick and that scene and the, and the couple that are like it like still stick me to this day like if i especially if i'm sleeping in someone in, in like some room with like a big window <laughs> i'm always just kind of like nervously flitting my eyes over it just to make sure nothing's going to come floating towards me at any moment in the middle of the night like it's just you know call it whatever but that that scene those scenes have still stuck with me to this day still stuck with me so much to this day and that's also like it's a little bit of classic vampire lore stuff where you can tell the people being compelled on the other side like the vampires are pulling some sort of trick maybe it's hypnosis maybe it's some sort of like mind thing but it's they've got that old school kind of trick going for them they still need to be invited in right right it's very classic stuff that's one of the things i love about this movie is is the classic vampire lore of it so Ben Mears is sensing, you know, things are going on and, you know, the, the chief is investigating and uh, Bonnie Bedelia's dad, who's also one of the, the, the a doctor, you know, kind of the town doctor, but also, you know, a doctor is like getting all these calls. This person's collapsed and this person's disappeared and this person's in the hospital and right. Mears is putting it all together in his head. But of course, the doctor is sensible and he's thinking one thing. Sure. And uh, he, two of the people he's trying to get into his confidence are the, the doctor and the Jason Burke, his former teacher, who he's yep. you know become friends with. And Burke is starting to get more receptive. And when Mike Ryerson, played yep. by Jeffrey Lewis, our Whit Bissell Award winner for this Hands episode. Up shows up one day after being bitten and is all confused and he plays the scene marvelously like a oh, yeah. guy who was coming down with a severe illness and hasn't slept in days and is confused and twitchy and you know Jason takes him home to look after him you know lets lets him into his house and that's when it's cemented that yes these are vampires Yes, you know, he's getting, you know Jason Burke is calling up uh, 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 Ben Mears and saying, "Find a crucifix and bring it here. Yeah. We, we need it." And, and that was kind of a fun part too, because he's like, "I don't know. I'm not Catholic. We need to find a Catholic." <laughs> yeah, it was a kind of a fun you, you thing. Know, like, "Oh shit, we need a crucifix." Where are the Catholics? Goes, he goes running over there, and 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 you know sees this thing and then later when Jason when Mike returns and Jason is alone it's another effectively creepy scene of uh, of Jeffrey Lew just playing as the vampire mm-hmm. in a rocking chair oh it's great with these unbelievable glowing eyes these contact it must have been impossible to see oh yeah but the effect is so worth it like the and, shine on those eyes couldn't be better it's so good unfortunately Burke has a heart attack, so one of Ben's most valid allies to go to other people and say, come on, you gotta trust me, there's vampires in this town, we have to get together and do something. This is finally, you know, as everything's coming apart, Barlow has arrived, and he's got a good jump scare in his introduction. Not the best jump scare, but a good one. No, no. But it also involves Ned. The um, the the mother of the Glip boys has has died, and David Soul and Ed Flanders head over to see the body because David Soul knows if nothing, this will convince him 
that there are vampires in this town. Right. And every vampire sequence in this movie is so effectively creepy yes. and scary. You know why, whether, you know, Toby, Ho- Toby Hooper will, of course, always be immortal for directing the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Sure. He also directed Poltergeist. But the Great way movie. he can so effectively scare a modern audience with vampires. On a TV movie. On no a less. TV a network movie. TV. Because let's face it, by the 70s, the classic monsters had become things of children. They were children's toys, literally. Right. You know, they were, they'd been the monsters. They were a joke, they, yeah. They'd already been turned into something kind of kid-friendly and not scary anymore. And, you know, this is one of those things. Night Stalker did a jo- good job with it as well. But this really made vampires creepy, scary, and seemingly real. When the Glick, when, 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 well, again, I was watching out my windows, like, and of course I'm a kid, right? But I remember when we were kids, man, I was always looking out that window, <laughs> always, always waiting for something to float up to the window. They're in that room with the body of Mrs. Glick, and David Soul knows what's going to happen. He's so convinced, and he, again, mm-hmm. testament to Soul as an actor, he's brilliant as he's sitting there, turning tongue depressors with yep. medical tape into a crucifix, but. He, you can see it. He's terrified. He knows what's going to happen. Oh, yeah. He knows he's going to need this cross. And Ed Flanders is still kind of like, I don't know why we're here. I got to go make a call. Right. And he tapes that cross together and he prays over the cross. And Mrs. Glick starts to rise from the table. And he's saying the prayer of, you know, though I walk through the shallow. Yeah, he's trying to figure it out. I will fear no evil. And he's yelling for Bill. Yeah, right, Bill. in here screaming for him, Bill comes in at just the right time and sees what's happening and he burns the cross into her forehead, which I guess really just makes her disintegrate because of right. You know, she doesn't so much disintegrate as disappear. Like but fade. Even then there's some sort of force that drags the medical table like like a suctioning in right. of her being uh, yeah. destroyed. And now Ed's like, all right, we got to get back to and get my wife and daughter the hell out of the town and then see what we can do to stop this evil. Can you imagine being in a situation such as Ben Mears where the best case scenario is this corpse in front of you hops up as a vampire? Like, that's what you're hoping for. It's like, I hope this is a vampire because that would really help me out right well, now. I, can you I, even I, fathom being in that kind of situation? I actually think, and you, you can interpret that in his performances, that he was hoping she wouldn't. And that right. he was crazy and an alarmist and that everything was going to have a rational explanation. Right. Even even if things didn't turn out okay, it wasn't going to be vampires at the very least. True. Yeah, it was just going to be a sudden outbreak of pernicious anemia. Now, However that happens. While this is going on, um, the older brother had been vampirized and he had come after his friend Mark. Petri, the monster, but because the kid likes monsters, he knows immediately what's going on. Oh, hell yeah. He's like, you're a vampire. He reaches back to a crucifix that's in a model he's been making. Brilliant move. Wards off his friend, and then when his dad comes to the door, like, were you having a nightmare, son? He's kind of like, I must have been. Because he knows his dad isn't going to believe him. Sure, exactly. What are you supposed to say? No, a vampire came to my, you know? He also knows what he has seen. Sure. 
Now, his mother had already been troubled by this, so they contact the local priest, and they're sitting at in their kitchen, and they're all talking to Mark about this odd behavior when the vampire attacks. Yep. And Mark's parents are killed in probably the only scene that isn't really effective. No, murder, that scene doesn't work super well. It doesn't work, but it was, you know, done for television... They could only be so violent, you know. Sure. It's it's really the one nitpick on the movie is is the killing of of, of Mark's parents. That yeah, like the the beginning of that scene um, too. Like if you want to get really nitpicky, there's kind of a bad edit where the dad like hears the phone ring and then he stares at the phone for a good like four seconds before things start happening. It's like maybe cut that a little bit better. Um, but yeah, it's still a great scene, or at least it turns out to be a great scene. Yes. The, oh, the, the arrival of the vampire is heralded by, yeah. you know, poltergeist activity is the best way to describe it. Absolutely. Yep. And then you get James Marston giving this great speech because he's there with Barlow to the priest, you know. Yeah. Throw away Back, the cross, holy man. Face the master on his own terms. Faith versus faith. And the priest is like, all right, I'll accept your challenge, but you got to let Mark go. you got to give Mark right. a running head start, which they do. And uh, we don't know what happens. Uh, as far as I know, in the novel, it's, it's his, the priest's faith is destroyed and he's kind of turned he, away. Is he vampirized in the novel? If I remember right, I can't remember if he's vampirized or not, but if I remember right, he sort of, because in the novel, um, there's more of a backstory to the priest that kind of explains why his effort with the cross fails. Now, in the movie, you get the implication that the master is just so powerful it didn't matter. Or at the very least, the priest's faith was shaken at that very point, and kind of understandably so. Although, to me, I would have yet more faith. Like, like if there were actual vampires, I, I guess I'd probably believe in this crucifix a bit more. But at any rate, uh, in the movie, it's either implied that the master is too powerful that it didn't matter, or again, the priest's shake uh, farther, um, oh, I forgot his, Callahan, was shaken um, you know, during that encounter in the book, uh, the, the priest is going through a crisis of faith and like he's a, you know, he's a severe alcoholic, like throughout the entire book. So it's a bit less of a surprise. And I believe in the book, he's also like seduced by Barlow. I can't remember if he's vampirized, though, or just becomes kind of a familiar slash advocate, because if I also remember right, and I wouldn't be the good, I would not be the good um, source for this, but I'm pretty sure that character also appears again in the um, Dark Tower series. I do know he appears in the Dark Tower series, but I, I believe his his faith is shaking, and and I, 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 this is just what I looked up. Um, but he's basically Barlow is satisfied with his defeat and destroying of the priest's faith, right? And the feet, the priest leaves town in shame, broken. Right? Yeah, exactly. Like I'm, I can't remember exactly how it went down for sure, but that sounds right. Yeah, that. I mean, you just said it right, but that 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 kind of recalls right because again, in, in the book, it's more of a clear like this is not. A, 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 this is not a priest who's doing well these days, you know, regardless of this encounter, which just kind of like was the last straw. The only scene we, we've seen. But it plays priest, out about the same. In the movie, the, we see the priest briefly ahead of this scene when Ben Mears and Bonnie Bedelia go to see him to ask mm -hmm. about vampirism. He's like, uh, uh -huh. no, the church doesn't, yeah. you know. 
So Mark runs off swearing vengeance against the vampire and he runs off and we don't know. This is the last we the last we see of the priest is is Barlow grabbing the crucifix out of his hand, bending and tossing it, it away. And tossing yeah. it away. We assume he kills the priest. It, it's the same right. assumption, at least in the yeah. movie. Now Ben and the doctor Bill, um, Bonnie Bedelia's father are heading back to Salem's lot while Bonnie Bedelia is going up to the house and I don't know why she's going up there but she sees Mark go into the house because Mark goes into the house it's during the day now he's right. going into the house to kill the vampire and, she and, goes in there after him and, and to his credit one of the few smart vampire hunters, because it seems like, an, and I'm not the first one to make this joke, um, but it seems like vampire hunters really like to do their hunting at like 4.30 in the afternoon as opposed to like, that's a 6 a.m. job if you're asking me. Yeah. Like that's a 6 in the morning job. You don't, you don't go hunting vampires at like, you don't have breakfast and then like a nice brunch and then you have lunch and then it's like, oh, better get around to hunting vampires. Sun's going to be down any minute. It's like, maybe, maybe we do that first thing in the morning. Like the second the sun is up, we do that. So they both go into the Marston house and they're captured by Straker. Yep. Straker ties up Mark and he takes Bonnie Bedelia away and it's cut from there. Mark, who we, we know, is an escape artist. We see a scene earlier it. where he escapes from a pair of handcuffs. And then says he can escape any knot. Like, tie by the yes. time my hands behind my back, Dad, I can escape any knot. And his dad doesn't. But that sets up this whole next thing where he just escapes. the. It sets know. up, yeah. Because Straker has tied him up and he's taken Bonnie away, obviously, to feed to right. Barlow. Ben and Bill. Susan. Character's name. Susan's. Yeah. Uh, return, get back to town, and they can't find her. Ben goes to the police station to find the vamp, the deputy who's obviously succumbing to vampirism. Yep. He goes to find Chief Gillespie, who is packing his family and getting the hell out of town. <laughs> yes. And, and, and which is a smart as hell move, obviously. But and, what I kind of love about that scene is like, if you look at the stuff they packed, it's just like, really? You needed the broom and the mop and the rake and the fan? Well, like, just leave. <laughs> you, well, they ain't coming back. They're taking everything they can with them, obviously. No, but still, like, like, look, we're, you know, the town's turning into vampire or whatever. Maybe he doesn't suspect vampires, but he, something awful. Like, you, I think I might have skipped the rake and the broom and the mop. He doesn't seem to know what's up, but I think this is... Uh, I think that's just... It's a smart move, anyway. Out. One of those TV movie things where you always got the loaf of bread and the green right. thing on the top of the on the top of the grocery bag. This is, oh, family's packed up. We, you put these things on the car. Right. So he's, you know, Ben's like, you're leaving? Yeah, go on the Carolinas, visit family. Yep. Like, sure you are. And, and he won't admit it, but he no. knows something's wrong. And he's getting the, his family. And again, to be fair, yeah, he may be, the town is dying. Sure, there's, not there's nothing many he can people do. people left to say. He's getting his family the hell out of there. Yep, and, and he even gives he gives Ben his gun, his he service gives revolver. Ben his gun. He's like, "You're staying? All right, here, try this." And then he drives off. Yep, that's and a good thing he did. That was, if you notice, that was a one take scene. That oh yeah, okay. One continuous take, Ben driving up and them doing that scene together. 
And oh, nice. that was mostly because they were losing the daylight and Toby Hooper was like, we got to get the scene done in one or else we're not going to get it in. And this right. is a pivotal scene. Sure. Well, not so much pivotal, but an important scene. Explains where the important. sheriff's going and where he yeah. gets the gun from. So Right, because the gun comes into play later, yeah. And exit Chief Gillespie and his family. Yep. Godspeed. Absolutely. And enjoy the Carolinas. Yep. So now it's really just Ben and Bill going up to the Marston house. And Ben is terrified of the Marston house because of an experience he had in it as a child. <laughs> That's more well-developed in the novel than it is in the movie. Yes. But, as is the house's backstory itself. Um, the, the doctor is obviously ready to charge in because now he knows, they, as they get up there, they see Susan's car and he knows his daughter's in there. So he's ready to charge in. And Ben is just kind of like shaking and forget about the fact that he knows vampires are in there. He doesn't want to go in this house anyways. Right. And as they're going in, Mark is coming out for his escape and they're like, is Susan in there? And they go in, you know, they all three of them go back in to find Susan. And unfortunately what they find is Straker. Yes. They split the party, never split the party. Well, and again, it was, I can really understand it. The doctor's trying to find yeah. his daughter. Absolutely, yeah. And, no, and but Ben that's, is you know. still kind of paralyzed with fear, so he heads up the stairs. Well, plus he's dealing with Mark. Like, Mark is there and kind of, yeah, he's trying and to figure I out what's going on. Also got to believe that the Doctor's fate helped inspire the fate of Kiefer Sutherland's character in The Lost Boys. You'd think so, yeah. You'd think so. And you also, you also like, there's definitely, at least to me, it's obvious, like an ob- another, like, psycho callback in that scene. Yes, um, so the doctor's taken out in the novel, he's killed in a trap set mm-hmm. up by the vampires. I know that much. And yeah, the, the same that, trap you kind of see later, but it's not the same. I also know that the climax actually takes place in the boarding home Ben was living in, mm-hmm. not the Marston house, mm-hmm. which I think is wrong. I think it should take place in the Marston's house. It's such an important feature. Yes. How does the climax? But that's you know Stephen King, he knows how to change things up. That's that's one of his his deals. Is you know, well, Ava Ava Miller and Weasel have a much richer backstory, at least in the book. Anyway, like going back to the book, Ava Miller and Weasel, they were an item back in the day. Ava Miller and we Ava Miller and Weasel themselves have a um, and it's mentioned or implied in the remake because it's again closer to the book, but they have a much closer connection to that house than you realize. Something that you don't get if you see only this version of the movie, but we can talk about it a bit later. Because I do know a little bit about the story behind the Marston House, mainly because the book outlays it more. Well, another thing about the the actors who play uh, Ava and Weasel, mm-hmm. uh, they both appeared together as uh, husband and wife in Stanley Kubrick's The Killing. And, and can... that's, that's why they were cast as a tribute to Stanley Kubrick. That's really cool. I didn't know that. So Straker's taken out with uh, Ben empties the gun into him and that seems to barely kill Straker. Just, yeah. They head into the basement for yet another nerve-wracking scene. Yes. As they find Barlow's coffin, drag it out of the root cellar, open the coffin, and the sun's going down, and 
Barlow opens his eyes and stares at Mark. And Ben saves Mark by pretty much nearly killing him. Breaking his spine. Pushing him away. Like, don't look at him. And he shoves Mark away. He suplexes him across the room. (laughs) That was almost enough. Just knocks Mark away. Jams the stake into Barlow's heart, knocks the light going back and forth, and that's where we get an even more terrifying image. As Mark is laying against this yeah, wall, my favorite we scene of the movie. see through the door behind him the vampires, eyes glowing, fangs bared, crawling towards him. And it's one of those like, turn around, turn around, right. look, look what's behind you, Mark. Mark, you really want to see what's going on back there, Mark? Mark, you want to do something? You want to do? I know it's interesting to see Ben drive the stake into to, into the vampire side, but you really got to concern yourself what's going on behind you. It's it's so well set up and done, like how he knocks that light. So that because the first couple of times it's just you're right. Yeah, yes, he stabs Harker. Like okay, Harker, you you look at Barlow. Barlow's dying. They cut back to Mark, who's just like obviously watching this incredible sight, not even thinking about what's behind him. I don't think any of us would. And everything's fine. And then as they cut back and forth, you start to see oh shit, there's this. Oh, yep. They're getting closer. Oh, wait. Turn around, Mark. Yeah, it's really awesome. They lock the vampires in. They set fire to the house. Mark and Ben escape. We don't know what happens to Susan. Right. They do not find her. And the wind is picking up. And as it was stated earlier, it mentioned that there was a great fire almost 100 years back that almost swept through the town because yes. of the way the, the wind was. And sure enough, that fire, Mark says, this fire is going to sweep through the town. And Ben's like, yes, it's going to destroy their hiding places. Yep. This fire will wipe out the rest of the vampires for us. And they go on the run. Yep. And that cuts to, I mean, there was actually a prologue that, that shows them two years later. Already run, but. Yeah. Yeah, it, it it shows them that they've been running for two years and the vampires are chasing them. Yep. And they're in uh, Guatemala in this chapel praying and gathering up supplies, holy water. And I've never seen it anywhere else, but in this, holy water is almost a... It like vampire reacts. Detector. Yes. Yeah. The vampires glow, in the presence of vampires, which I thought was kind of a neat construct. It, yeah, the, the the it glows so they know the vampires are nearby and it's like yeah. they found us, they gotta keep running. And uh, that's kind of the end. There's a little more, but I don't want to go into any more because if you've seen it, you know, and if you haven't, you need yeah. to see it and experience it. Yeah, we skipped a handful of really fun scenes, like the whole we, scene where uh, Mike and Ned are picking up the sideboard, oh, yeah. quote unquote. We, we, we skipped a lot, and, yeah. and those two, and again, Ned and Mike Ryerson, these two actors, and this, there's a scene where basically they're afraid of a box in the back of their truck, but as, as they, they play be. it so masterfully, it works. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, absolutely. This, this air of evil that the vampires give off is palpable. Yeah. Cause we've all been there where like two, 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 you know, the two of you are afraid of something and one of you's like, let's go check it out where the other one's like, what are you an idiot? <laughs> and cause and Ned's all about opening this thing up. That's terrifying. And it's like, no stupid. No. And you start to feed on each, each other's fear and it right. escalates. And, and soon before you realize it, you're afraid of your own shadows. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, no, you know, Ned's all about opening. See, it's moving. It's, it's, it's cold. We should open it. No. No, 
those are all signs that you should definitely not open it and open it. In fact, I would just leave it on the side of the road and walk away and never be heard from again. You know, you see it moving towards you as you're driving. Yeah. Um, no, it, it, yeah, go ahead. When, when they like, cause there's, yeah, they're supposed to be delivering what they're told is a side, an antique sideboard yep. for Straker and delivering it to the Marston house in the basement and then locking up the basement with four padlocks and chains, as right. you do. As, as you do. Has. I mean, and, you figure it's an expensive sideboard, so you want to lock it up, make sure no one steals the sideboard, I guess. I guess. They get so worked up that by the time like they're running out of there, like, we forgot to do the chains. Just throw them in the basement, close it up, we're getting the hell out of here. Yep. And, uh, yeah, yeah we, they, they duck out because they hear someone upstairs, which is presumably um, Straker returning with the body of the younger Glick boy. Because he shows up seconds later. If you're a fan of horror and vampire movies, this is an absolute must-see. Oh, it's an essential, yeah. It it's would absolutely be a an essential. shame for us to spoil any more than we already have if you haven't seen it. Absolutely. It is well worth the $10 Blu-ray. I highly yep. recommend you find it and watch it that way. It, you can rent it, like I just kind of looked it up, and, and if you have Amazon Prime, you can rent it for $3 if you want right. to try it out that way. But honestly, spend the extra 7 and, and buy the Blu-ray. It's a horror classic, yeah. I mean, you're not I, hearing it from us. You're hearing it from anyone who's seen the movie. It's a horror classic. I mean, yeah. Toby Hooper, Stephen King, yep, together collaborate. I mean, I don't think they actually worked together, but they did. Sure, you know, it's it's separate. And and again, this is one of the the the, the adaptions of his work that Stephen King thinks very highly of. As he sh- as I, I'm I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, as he Remember, should. Like if he does not like The Shining, <laughs> Stephen right. Kubrick's The Shining, he does not like. Not because right. he thinks it's bad so much as he doesn't like what was done to his original. He doesn't like the changes. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't like the changes. Like, I think the changes in this version of Salem's Lot work for the limited running time, which is why I'm like, I'm, I shouldn't say concerned, but it's like I'm interested into seeing what the now next new remake does because they've done one that's been on its that's kind of on its own they did one that's a lot like the book so i'm kind of curious as to see where this one falls in line because they both have their merit like it's a really good book and, and again you, you know me matt uh, you know people of the of the podcast probably don't but like i don't read much i just don't i don't read a lot of novels especially and trying to even think of reading a Stephen King novel, which are legendarily long, is out there. But this movie, I fell in love with this movie so much, had seen it so many times, I was finally compelled to read the novel. And I'm glad I did, because it's, it's just different enough, but also has very much the same vein. And I like the decisions they made, because they essentially turned Barlow's character into a, just a monster. So that way Straker could kind of take over a lot of what Barlow might have said, but less seductively. And I think that works extremely well when you have James Mason as your option. You know, why take away from that? I think, I think that whole dynamic worked out perfectly. Um, uh, one of the things, like just to go very quickly about the house, so my understanding that the, the movie, this movie, the, the, the 79 version, doesn't really say it as much. It just kind of leaves it up to you to sort of figure it out. And they kind of imply that that house has been associated with a bunch of shady characters, including the eponymous Marst- Marstons themselves, um, for a long time. Whereas the book kind of really clarifies that. Um, not, not in excruciating detail, but the way you would call the, or the way the book more or less presents it is it's not so much the house itself is, inher- is inherently evil, but 
it started with a person who was inherently evil, inviting more people who were inherently evil to like do evil things at the house and just became its own feedback loop. And if I remember correctly in the book, it's the Marstons who at some point invite Straker and Barlow there, presumably to do whatever it is that they're doing. Maybe they're part of a cult that they play in. Like that's never really clear, but it's like basically that house has been like a denizen of evil, presumably satanic activity or, you know, vampire related any, anyway activity over the years and years and years. So that, you know, Straker and Barlow's arrival was invited and ultimately inevitable. Whereas in this, it's more of like, do you think the house is just evil and attracts evil, which is, kind of the same but not quite um but yeah like this the the differences between the two are both more subtle than you would think but that those subtle differences really do kind of change the the feeling of the story same basic story either way but definitely the book is again yeah much more of a a bit more subdued more of like a seductive sort of vampire vibe where you know barlow i mean he's going to take whatever he wants but he's actually trying to get people to uh, he's, it's more of an evil things kind of vibe where he's trying to get people to want it more. I, maybe that's tastier to him or I, I don't know, or maybe it, it kind of seems like it just amuses him. Um, sort of like the vibe you get when, when James Mason is talking to Father Callahan and saying, you know, faith versus faith. Like they didn't have to do that. It just seems like it just, he wanted to, like he just wanted to screw with the priest because he could. He, he clearly enjoyed being evil. Right. Exactly. Both, exactly. Both Straker and, uh, James Mason playing Straker. Oh, yeah, it was fantastic. Um, was James Mason in um, uh, Rosemary's Baby as well? Or am I thinking of someone else? I don't recall him being in Rosemary's Baby. All right, maybe I'm thinking of someone else. No, For some no, reason, I thought... I've only seen Rosemary's Baby once, and That's that really was movie. close to 30 years ago. Oh, wow. Um, I, it's a good movie, but it was one that I was just like, all right, I've seen it. I, I get it. Although I watch Omen numerous times, and but it was more um, I just, won't say, Omen is definitely the more, in, I don't want to say more, because it implies that Rosemary's Baby isn't as good. But I guess if you're going to choose one over the other, I'd probably pick Omen as well. Well, the thing is, Rosemary's yeah. Baby really is all about leading up to the reveal that even though exactly. you know what it's going to happen, it's all about and once you know it, it's not as. I mean, there's you know, it's it's Roman Polanski, so there's there's a lot there to, to see and witness, and, and the the yeah. acting is fantastic, and it's got this great atmosphere. But I don't find it as enjoyable a rewatch as other movies. Gotcha. So yeah, I don't recall um, James Mason being in I've... there. I'm trying to remember who the leader, more or less, of the cult was. And I can't remember if he played Dr. Saperstein or not, but yeah, whatever. Yeah. No, I don't believe so. I could be wrong. Yeah, doesn't matter. Um, yeah, this is, uh, this is one of my favorites. It's like one of my top five. No, this um, is, this is uh, uh, it, it's top five vampire movies as far as I'm concerned. Oh, concern. sure. Yeah, no, this is like one one of my top five movies, like period, but definitely probably my favorite vampire movie, right yeah, next to like Lost Boys and Dracula. Absolutely, it's it's just absolutely amazing. It's it's yep. dripping with atmosphere. It's three hours that goes by really quickly, and it's a freaking TV movie from the seventies. Yeah, <laughs> it's still one of the scariest ones for me. It's it's but it's wonderful, it, and I think that's one of the reasons that helps it 
is because Toby Hooper, who, again, is a master of horror. Sure. Yeah, this is the we, same guy who did Texas Chainsaw. I mean, talk about two different vibes, right? Texas Chainsaw Massacre would have been 74, 73? 73. When yeah. you're making something for television and you know the restrictions, you know yep. what you're going to have to do to scare people is to get into their heads because you can't show as much on TV. Right. And he does so, a tremendous that's job. what he does. He gets into your head. He knows what's going to scare, unnerve, and unsettle you, and that's how he presents the material. It's yep. fantastic. Every, every single scare scene in this movie, like you said, and every scene with the vampires is just so effective. Um, he, he does not waste any time with any of those scenes. Uh, everything is really, just really detailed. Um, the, the makeup effects, all of it, just absolutely wonderful. And there's even little subtle things, too. Like, you can tell... Uh, again, in the book, because they do a lot of talking, the vampires clearly have some sort of like mind control or at least heavily uh, the ability to heavily suggest to make yeah, you heavily suggestible. They, they can hypnotize you to kind of right. you in your tracks and get you over the, or, or at least get you to not run away or uh, right. get you to let you. Who's going to let in the floating creepy kid? Exactly. Nobody exactly. In the right mind. But but, you know, if you've seen enough vampire, especially classic vampire movies or even Red Dracula, you know that that sort of ability is part of the lore. And what I thought was kind of interesting, I don't think I really ever noticed it until, you know, finally watching it so many damn times. But one thing I noticed that was kind of cool, this like subtle little ad was like um, in many of the scenes where someone had already had like at least one interaction with a vampire, but hadn't been technically turned yet. They were just feeling sick you know, because there's lots of scenes where they find people like just waking up after being bit or just, like you know, always exhausted. like. Exactly. Bad flu. But when one of the things you notice, and I always just took it as, oh, there's, you know, they're so sick. So why wouldn't they? But if you notice, because there's a scene later when uh, Eva Miller has obviously been visited by, um, I think it's Weasel. Um, and she was talking about like, oh, yeah, you know, the beautiful singing and I feel really tired. And, and um, uh, Susan's like, you should go lay down. And she's like, at first she gives her this look and she's like, yeah, I'll do that. And it's like, and when you contrast that, or when you when you think about again, like Mike, for example, when when Jason and uh, when he bumps into Jason and um, and uh, Ben at the at the place at the uh, restaurant, and they're like, Mike, you need to you need to go to my house and take. It's like, yeah, okay. They stay suggestible every single time, every single one of like there's always saying something, and then just kind of like, yeah, you're right. I just thought that was a cool. I don't know if that was on purpose. I suppose it was. Toby Hooper being, you know, obviously a masterful filmmaker. Um, I just thought I, I never really noticed that before. How suggestible they kind of stayed in that that dreamlike sort of state. They're always like very agreeable. It's like, oh yeah, okay. Well, even to minds, whoever. Yeah, a clouded. You know, they're yep. weak. They're success. Yeah. yeah really important point. detail. Yeah. Excellent. Point. Like, yeah, wa like watch it. Like it really hits at home later when you see Ava Miller later, and she's like, "You should go to bed," and she gives her this look like, "I'm gonna like kill you right now," and then it's like, "Yeah, I'll go to bed." Like, oh wow, I just know it. Like they're always agreeable after that. That's that's really neat. It's like a really neat little touch. You can feel that because they don't come out and say, "Oh, vampire will trick you." Um, the most blatant it would be is later when he's like, "Don't look at him." When he throws like again, he suplexes Mark across the room <laughs> so he doesn't get tricked into. Uh, into the master that, uh, you know, Barlow's eyes. But um, it, like, that's the thing. Like they, this movie either expects that you kind of know vampires. So it's not going to like hammer you with the lore. It's just going to be a given or just run with it either way, which I appreciate. Like there's no, for, for as much of a movie and it's a Stephen King one at that and exposition is definitely a thing. Like they don't bother you with any of that stuff, which I well, really appreciate. And again, because they're like the seventies had had all these vampire right. movies, and they, they just assume you know by now. Yes, they didn't. Well, it was a conscious 
effort to not repeat it that you guys you know what it is and since we're not changing the law like so many vampire movies today they come up with their own ideas yeah and it's like like so in twilight the vampires are like living statues they seem like they're made out of rock i don't know what's going on over there okay Um, yeah but you know it's you know they make up their own stuff um so but yeah again it was a conscious effort to not because again you always a lot of these movies and even in, in uh the lost boys where you got you know Corey feldman it's like some implode some explode you know it's never a pretty yeah. sight you know you always get that scene where the wise old person explains how to destroy the vampires yes they thought it would come off as cheesy and comical so they just avoided yeah. it plus plus it also helped that mark Petrie was literally into monsters and stuff. So it's kind of yeah. like, yeah, I know what I'm doing. I got, I got my stakes. In fact, like I had a feeling he already had stakes available just because he figured this might happen someday. No, this is, this is a must see masterpiece and yep. you should definitely have it in your Halloween watch list. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, yeah. If you somehow haven't seen this and you're a fan of really horror at all, much less vampire movies, this is, this is an essential. Yep. All right. Anything else to say? About this movie, no. I mean, not without just ruining it uh, or trying to ruin yes, it. Yeah, yeah. Because, um, like, again, you can't, like, you like you already pointed out, and like we've said many times, this is a TV movie, right? So we can very much ruin this movie by talking about it too much because a lot of it has to play in your head. They have to set it up for you. We can't just be like, oh, uh, oh, this scene is so crazy and gory, like we couldn't possibly do it justice because it's not a very gory movie at all. Well, but you, you, the other thing too is obviously. We could straight up tell them what the best jump scare is, and it would still get yeah. them. But I'm not gonna. Yeah, not it gets gonna. me every time, and you, I've seen this movie easily a dozen times. You'll know it when it happens, people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so, uh, what are your suggestions? Uh, I mean, I guess to me they're kind of obvious, right? Uh, Dracula, almost any of the iterations of Dracula, they all have their own merit. Um, uh, whether it be the the Francis Ford Coppola one, you know, which I I kind of dug, and you know. Um, uh, I, I, I really dug that one. Um, Gary Oldman's great. Um, Lost Boys, which you also mentioned, um, is another fantastic movie. Um, really, like, I always get, like, Hammer movie vibes from this because it's a very 70s movie, still dripping in the 70s. You know, the Valor, the Valor, um, um, in, you know, like, I don't know what it is, some sort of jumper that uh, Boom Boom Betty is wearing, or, or whatever her name is. Um, the one that Fred Willard's sleeping with in his silk underwear. But, yeah, like, to me, it's really any of the classic any sort of like classic vampires where it's the classic vampire rules, um, this movie will definitely hit you. Uh, I mean, obviously Lost Boys is a bit more comedic. It's more of a, it's slightly more dark comedy, but it's, it's kind of, again, modern vampire, but still kind of classic rules vibe. Yes. Uh, I'm going to go with John Badham's version of uh, Dracula from 1979 starring Frank Ligella. Yep. Uh, Lawrence Olivier possibly the greatest screen actor who ever lived. Sure. And that's a great and, scene. Um, uh, there's some great scenes and some really great, good horror scenes in that. And, and Donald Pleasance is also in it. And he's one of my favorite people of all time too. I oh, love yeah, yeah. Donald Pleasance. Oh, and yeah. it's very effective, but it also gives you the other, uh, the other way they were going with a vampire movie at that very time. Right on. So check that out. Uh, and I've a unique, already, a unique uh, Dracula death too. Um, I've already talked about the Night Stalker. Check that out. And I'm adding also Blackula, which is like not one of really the, good. 
not only one of the best black exploitation movies, but one of the best seventies vampire movies. It's a damn good vampire movie. Yeah, like I for years I never bothered to watch it because it's like I just you know I heard Blackula, so I just figured okay, it's all about exploitation. Um, and it's just a name and didn't think the movie itself could live up to being anything decent. It was just to me, to me, it felt. And again, this is my complete ignorance is it felt like a, it felt like a movie that was just like, wouldn't it be funny if there was a movie called Blackula? And then that was it. But the it's name, actually a damn good vampire movie. The, the, the name almost does sell it short. Right. That's what I'm saying. Like to me forever, I just avoided it because of the name. I just thought it would be dumb. But no, it's quite good. It, it's fantastic. And you know who yeah. else is who's in that? No. Is it Jeffrey Lewis again? Junior, fantastic. He was all over the seventies vampires movies. Yeah, if if you get I mean, aside from aside from being a you know, obviously watching Salem's Lot, but even if you've seen Salem's Lot and you're looking for a new vampire movie that or not new obviously, but a vampire movie you haven't seen or maybe passed over, definitely check out Blackula. Don't don't make the same mistake I did for decades thinking like it must be dumb because it's got such a silly name. That's that's it's really a damn good stand up on its own vampire movie. All right, um, let, let's move on to seven degrees, uh, seven magnificent degrees. Go for it. Oh, you don't have one? I don't, no. You don't want to just say James Mason was in The Last of Sheila with James Coburn? Well, that's, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, but I mean, I kind of already did that. I, I last, you know, yeah, but I mean, that, that was just too easy. I didn't want to go too easy. I didn't see the point. All right, well, then I, guess I figured, we'll I assumed you were going to do something harder than that. Yes. Yeah, I'm going to go with David Soul because he's basically the star of this. Mm-hmm. He was in Magnum Force with Clint Eastwood. He was? Yeah, he's one of the vigilante cops. In fact, oh, okay. he's the one that... Uh, I don't remember Magnum Force that well. That um, is the closest in the competition, police shooting competition with uh, Harry Callahan. Okay, I guess I just don't remember Magnum Force that well. Um, so, yeah, he's in that with Clint Eastwood, and Clint Eastwood is in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly with Eli Wallach, and Eli Wallach is, of course, the villainous Calvera in The Magnificent Seven. Right on. All right, well, I think we should probably end it here, because we've gone pretty long, but this is a long movie. It's a three-hour, you know, miniseries, so it's fitting. Yep. Uh, We thank you for uh, listening, and we hope you come back to us again. Thank you, everyone.